This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Investors Roundtable. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and we made it to episode 10. Let's get, we made it. This is great. I can't believe it. So uh, joining us this week for a pretty epic uh, panel and, uh, and, a, and a very interesting topic as well. That, and I thank everybody on, our, on Twitter who sent in some potential topics that, who knows, we might use in future episodes at this point. But uh, let me introduce everybody on here, start going uh, counterclockwise. We've got Stephen Keel from Arquitos Capital. How's it Just, going, Robert? Very good, very good, sir. Thank you for joining me this morning. I know you're not necessarily a morning person, but uh, hey. We're getting you out of bed. This is good. We got to do it. <laughs> Very good stuff. Right directly across from me, we got Jeremy Deal from JDP Capital. Jeremy, how's it going today? Good. Or this it's afternoon. Going great. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Thank you for joining me. And then right under Jeremy, we got Christian Reiter from Kareen Capital. His first time on the show. Christian, take a, a virtual. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. And then also joining us is Tom Backrack from PFH Capital. Tom, what's happening, man? Not much, man. Not much. Glad to be here. Uh, looking forward to uh, talking cash. Um, and we agreed <laughs> before the program we had to disclose if we had cash, right? Yeah, I think, I think we all collectively agreed that for full right. disclosure, we all yep. own cash. We all hold cash. So, right? yeah. We all hold cash. No, no. full disclosure, yes. I'm penniless at the moment. So, oh, penniless. So no, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, not long cash. So short, uh, shorted actually. <laughs> well, I was I was hoping someone would say I was hoping someone would say like I'm lo- I, I'm I'm a whole I'm full disclosure I hold cash but it's all in quarters and or nickels or something yeah. to that nature. <laughs> in a briefcase. Any dollars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, this this takes us to today's topic. Um, again, thank you all for sending in some suggestions. So, topic for today that was sent in by at bootstrap and i want to get your twitter handle completely correct so forgive me two seconds it's bootstrap it's brian mccann at bootstrap 68 and your topic that you sent in for us to talk about today is everyone's view on the optionality of holding cash and how they can incorporate it into their investing strategy okay that's the topic i I figure i'm gonna throw it to the new guy first Let's get his thoughts. And also, uh, Christian, not only your thoughts on that, but since your first time on here, how you've been managing through the pandemic and everything. And, you know, give us, a, give us your 30,000 foot, uh, how you've been doing, and then talk about cash. Okay. Uh, 30,000 foot is pretty easy. Like, uh, we were at 50,000 and we've fallen very hard and painfully. <laughs> and I'm confused as to whether we can get the engines going again. Um, no, this... I came into this year thinking, oh, we have a inverted yield curve and so we're due for a recession. And that did me absolutely no good whatsoever. I still owned all these cyclical names with a ton of leverage and I was completely behind the eight ball. So I did not foresee this at all. And that actually, and now I think that there's a lot of opportunities and turnarounds and in like sort of beat up value stuff because 
everybody, including me, is trying to be a, a fast-growing growth investor. Um, it's just the zeitgeist. Um, so I'm trying not to do that, even though I bought a few of those little things. Um, my view on cash is, in terms of optionality, the only reason to hold cash for optionality is if you have an illiquid portfolio or if you are good at selling when the market is high and buying when the market is low. And for myself, I've got maybe 40% of the portfolio is illiquid where it's hard for me to sell if there's not a big news day um, in any one of those. And if I do sell, like it's gotta be tiny bits or I'm getting like, I'm pushing the price entirely too much. Um, the other 50, 60% I can sell at will. Um, and so that means that if I need to, if I find a great opportunity, I can probably sell something that I've got to buy the other thing, um, the new better opportunity. So I don't need to hold cash for that optionality. In terms of being able to sell out when the market's super high and buy when the market's super low, what I learned from March and what I've seen in the past is that when the market is super low and about to bottom, I am even more pessimistic and I think it's gonna get so much worse um, and I'm not the buyer. So for me, there's no reason for me to hold cash waiting to take advantage of those great opportunities at the bottom because I simply don't. So what I should do is just like, if I see an opportunity, I take it. Um, if I have no opportunities and I need to sell my stock, I'll sell my stock and I'll have cash. Um, and full disclosure, I have some cash right now, but it's insignificant. Um, I may sell something soon to get more cash, but that has nothing to do with optionality. That just has to do with it's no longer a great investment at the price. Um, so for me with my style uh, in terms of liquidity and ability to hit the bottom or hit the top, um, I shouldn't hold cash for optionality value. So that's, that's my personal view. I feel, like, I feel like Warren and Charlie behind you are just sitting here judging us. And <laughs> yeah, that's what they're there out. for. Like every day <laughs> subconsciously to be like Christian, really? Like, uh, put down your phone. Like, <laughs> <laughs> are you for sure? And, yeah. And with Charlie too, because you have kind of the, the glare is coming in through the window and it's blocking his one eye. So it actually, I know, I know. One eye watching us. <laughs> the eye of Sauron. Yeah. But, see, I thought, see, I thought Christian, when you said for full disclosure, I do hold a little cash. I thought you were going to then say in a duffel bag in my backyard, oh. buried, buried somewhere for, for that one opportunity or two. When I saw or, that the, Mnuchin came out saying that like use coins everybody I was like wait are coins like no more valuable than they should be is this like that they're being sucked out of circulation but I don't yeah. think that's the case I think it's just people not not spending them someone Scrooge McDuck did I think and is is hoarding all of the quarters and nickels and Susan B Anthony dollars so I don't yeah. know what the background was with all of these coins that every store I go to is saying hey can you leave a few for us along the way it's very strange. I thought they wanted to take these small coins out of circulation last year. I don't know what's changed. Yeah, pennies. Yeah. Well, well, let's uh, let's get every so everybody's perspective here on the option of holding cash, and then we can kind of have a full full discussion on this. So, uh, Tom, it's been a couple of weeks since you've been on. You know, what what do you think? It was. I mean, I'm with Christian. I I, I don't I don't really care for cash much. I, I think my ideal cash position in the you know an investment portfolio is zero. Percent. Um, I think my realistic position is ten percent. Um, you know, my realistic long-term target with frictions getting in and out of positions, things like that. Like, like I get it. I understand that there's optionality to 
cash, so like I, I get the argument for that. Um, I guess my my kind of concern with that is that you pay money for options, you pay a premium, and and, and the premium in this case is the opportunity cost of not being in, you know, uh, you know, reasonably or hopefully cheaply valued good business. And so I guess then the question becomes, um, can you find reasonably cheaply valued good businesses and like you know i mean like like i understand why that's a problem for you know you know warren and uh and uh charlie over there um and and you know it's it's there's like three things they can buy that move the needle so i i, I get why they can end up with a bit of cash sometimes being patient and it's completely rational for them um if you're small nobody you know like me um, you have access to just tens of thousands of potential investments around the world. Uh, you know, if, if I can't find something better than cash, I, I'm not, I'm not working hard enough. And so, you know, you know, the, the exceptions for me, of course, is, you know, if you're managing a pot of money and you have new inflows and all of a sudden you're cash heavy, um, you know, I don't think it's a good idea. I'm a low turnover guy. I'm a, a patient guy so you know you might be sitting in 40 percent cash while you allocate that over a year or two and i don't really give a crap over a year or two carrying a bunch of cash but look over the long term um i i find it hard to believe that the premium measured by opportunity cost is going to be you know is, is going to be less than the actual optionality value of that cash and i'd say that that's never been more true when interest rates are zero and cash is anything but scarce um you know if there's always so you know that's part of the problem we ran into so far this year is you know all the people who sat there and are like oh i have all this cash someday you know everyone's being crazy someday they'll come back to me for help well not turns out like a lot a lot of industries just went to the government they printed it and gave it to them so like so like you were kind of left you know you were left in the lurch that wasn't true in every sector that wasn't true necessarily in energy in certain places but um you know, I, I just think I, I think holding a sig significant percentage of cash over very long term periods is a recipe for for disaster. Um, so I guess was, that's kind of my uh, two cents in a nutshell. Um, so now that we're all going to say that you shouldn't hold cash, should we just end the program early or uh, like what were you waiting for? <laughs> <laughs> anyone, anyone great? Yeah. Jeremy, let's let's hear your thoughts. Let's I mean, wrap it. All right, I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a cash strategy um, at this point. It's I run a really concentrated portfolio of companies I want to own for a really long period of time. Um, the top four companies are probably 80, 85% of the fund. I study them pretty much full time all year. Um, and that's what I'm interested in doing. And if there's extra cash, I would say, well, why wouldn't I just put it to work in those names? I'm not a huge fund. I don't have, you know, I'm not a 10 billion fund or something. And yeah, there could be big volatility. There could be a big drawdown, but based on the way I invest, it's just, it's not going to really, there's no benefit. I don't see an operational benefit. I mean, we keep cash for operation, for operational stuff at the, at the uh, hold co level, but I uh, just don't see, it's just not really a part of my strategy. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not running a, a you know, an operating company per se. Um, and 
if somebody gives me money, you know, I, I'm, I would expect that I'm also not somebody's um, cash. You know, I'm, I'm not there to manage other people's cash. I mean, they're paying me to run money. They're paying me to invest money. Um, I've got a, you know, my benchmark, the S&P 500 is, is not something to, you know, you can just sleep at the wheel. You need to be aware and you need to understand what's going on. And, and, and those are big, amazing companies that are continuing to grow. And if that's your competition, then, you know, it's, it's hard enough. Um, most value investors or any type of investor, actually, for that matter, whether you're a global macro guy or a levered up or you're a whatever you are, most people have a really hard time beating the S&P 500 over a 20-year period or a really long period of time, even with leverage, even with the smartest guys in the room or girls in the room. So um, to, to, to throw in a cash component on top of that, regardless of your strategy, I think um, makes it really difficult. Um, but I've gone through periods in the past where I've, I've thought it was a great idea to always have this kind of cash balance. Um, and uh, there's another, there's a, a, a larger investor that I admired who, who talks about, you know, keep that last 10% of cash for the 10X or 100 bagger type of company, otherwise just keep it there. And all that sounds nice, but um, I have so much more capacity in my names than I have as a fund that um, if you handed me another 500 million, I could put it to work in my existing portfolio. So whether I've got you know, five or 10%, I mean, if I had five or 10% in cash, it just, it's not really how I operate. I'd say the last thing I would say is the, the way that I'm compensated is probably like most fund managers are compensated on an annual return. Um, so with an annual return, it's not as important to me to, to worry necessarily about a monthly, monthly movements in the portfolio. I'm really concerned about how the fund is going to perform in a given year or given three years or given five year period. So it's just, you know, if something really catastrophic happened in the market, like it did in late March or early April, ideally, you know, I have a relationship with my investors and I can write to them like I did at the end of March and say, now is the time to add capital. Um, if you were thinking about adding, add now, and they can add, and, and we get the benefit of that. So that's my kind of my view on cash. It's um, I'm not running leverage, or we don't have any margin, but um, generally speaking, I don't really have a cash strategy. Gotcha. I uh, we should have yeah, we should have had Seth Klarman on here to take the other side, right? Uh, <laughs> four or five of us and, and Seth, but it is a different situation. It, it, the broader question is, I think, position sizing, which uh, it'd be interesting to get into a little bit here as well, because you know some strategies would consider the cash to be a position in and of itself, whether it's optionality or or something else here. But I mean, to Jeremy's point, to Tom's point, to Christian's point as well, is that what size are you running and what's your strategy? So if you have any sort of special situation approach, uh, even as a peripheral strategy in your portfolio, there's always something to do. You know, there's cash equivalents there where you can make a little bit of a return, where you can do something that you could move quickly, that there's enough liquidity in that type of position that you don't necessarily want to be in it for the long term, but it can be uh, you know, whether it's an M&A kind of thing, whether it's, you know, in our case, there's liquidations, there's payouts, there's, uh, there's a whole host of, of uh, different types of strategies that you can do on the edges that can get you a better return 
with a similar uh, risk uh, profile and amount as holding a large cash, pos cash position in and of itself, even if you do have some of those long-term compounders, so to speak, uh, in, in the portfolio as well. My concern is exactly what Christian said uh, earlier on, is that when you have that cash position and then the crash happens, who actually puts it to work, right? I mean, <laughs> if you point. put it to work with that right yeah. timing, you yeah. don't fool yourself, you got lucky. Uh, yeah, so yeah. It, the people that tend to hold the cash seem to be so then, you know, and it's good to be risk averse, of course, but you've got to take a swing every once in a while when that fat pitch is coming by. And I, I see people who really hold cash positions oftentimes are just, they're just sitting there strike. You know, I mean, obviously no one strikes out here, but it's uh, in the fund management business, you know, it's underperformance over several years because of that ex uh, excessive cash position. And they're just, too risk averse to actually kind of be in the game, so to speak. That's what I see. That's a great you, point, Steve. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was actually the one thing I was going to ask because you know every mainstream you know pundit will say, or well, not every mainstream pundit, but you know you'll get a lot of pundits talking to the retail audience, and they'll say, you know, now is the best time to be in cash because now you can deploy it, you know, for these names that have dropped, you know, 30, 40 percent off their you know 52 week highs and yeah. you know watch it watch that ride up because you know this is a you know potentially a flash crash or there's a v-shaped recovery you know you start to hear the bullish side but and that's what you should be doing is thinking like a contrarian but that's such a difficult difficult mindset to put yourself in as a retail investor you know well, just say you know, look, they've been investor, correct on really. their timing one out of the last 10 times, right? And then you take that one time that they got lucky and hit the bottom, and then they use that to fundraise for the next 10 or 15 years, okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we, we, you can't follow that type of thing. And look, and, and portfolio size has a massive thing to do with it as well, because if you're, you know, if you're a Seth Klarman or something like that, you've got, you know, 10, 20, whatever billion plus, fine. If you're a Buffett, fine. You know, because when you put money to work, you're moving the market. So you can't do those cash equivalent positions in the same way that, you know, us sub billion dollar funds can do. So mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And there, I mean, Buffett's portfolio is illiquid just because he's so huge or say so with Seth Klarman. Like if you're that big, like just about any stock is illiquid and you're going to move it if you try to sell. Like he was yeah. like astonished he could sell all the airlines as quickly as he could and it still took days and everybody knew it was happening. Well, that's because you had you had Davy Day Trader on the other side of that trade. <laughs> what a blessing! Yeah, yeah, and, and it's it just kind of to your point, Steve. I mean, there's always something to do, no matter what your strategy is. You know, there's there's hundreds and hundreds of in, of investable companies just in the U.S. Thousands actually, and if you, if you look globally, there's even more. So I, I you know, I, I don't want to judge other strategies, but I would say that there's always something to do. And if you're paying somebody to own cash or you're the manager pay, accepting someone's money um, or, or even if you don't charge a management fee, you're still an opportunity. It's, it's creating an opportunity cost to, to say that there's literally nothing better to do with the money than keep it in cash and you're a sub billion manager. I think that's, um, that's 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 false but that doesn't mean you have cash in your own personal life like i keep cash um in my checking account for my own life just in case something happens i'm not fully invested um and i keep a, maybe a year's worth of, of cash burn or, or expenses in the bank 
Um, and I have no debt on a personal side, but uh, as far as the fund, I mean, this is, I, and I assume my, my investors have cash. I don't, I don't know their business, but I would assume they have cash and other investments they have in their lives as well. So, um, you know, yeah, there's, there's always something to do. I think you'd encourage them too, because when you're running or when, when someone is invested in this concentrated portfolio where there is potential for volatility, and you know, certainly we look at volatility as a way we want to take advantage of it. It's not risk, but then those investors, I would highly encourage and my fund and, and, and others like that to keep a year or two of cash uh, on, on the side external to the fund for their own living expenses. Because even though whatever, whatever money should be invested, not just in funds that we run and things like that, but anything in equities, you really have to have a three to five year at a minimum time period in that just because of the natural volatility of the markets. I was actually going to, I was going to take a second to try to defend cash optionality. And, uh, but actually, actually you guys already, already kind of went part of the direction. So one, obviously um, on a personal level, I know I disclosed I was uh, not long cash. I, I am long a couple of years. Like, and that's the thing is like on a personal level, um, even if only for your own mental sanity and what you need to manage money, especially in March when the markets are going crazy, having, having cash on the side is of immense value. And, and the value of that transcends things that we can tell you with financial metrics. You know what I mean? It's not, you know, an Excel spreadsheet would say maybe no, um, any kind of study human psychology and, and risk would say, yes, you should absolutely have that. Um, the other place that, uh, cash optionality is totally a positive thing. And, and, and I do look for it is, well, not, I don't look at it at the portfolio level as much in the individual holdings. It makes a hell of a lot of sense sometimes, you know, um, I could, you know, I give a million examples, but you know, a classic example would be, you know, a business that operates in cyclical industry. Um, you know, they have a lot of leveraged peers and, and they run a really safe balance sheet. They carry a bit of cash and, they look, they look dumb for nine years. Um, any, any MBA student with, with Excel skills will, can, can show all the return they've left on the table. But then in the 10th year, they make, that's where the return comes in. And, and, and you know, you can look at some of these businesses over 30 years to kick the crap out of these over leveraged businesses, but you got to sit on, you got to sit and watch them for, for nine years as an investor to get there. So, so I, I, I love cash optionality, uh, depending on the business context in an individual holding. Um, and then the other aspect, of course, that they're dealing with is at the portfolio level, we can diversify, you know, like if you run a business and that's most of your net worth, um, you know, you can, you can't afford to take you know, you're pretty damn concentrated. You got a hundred percent position in effect and, you know, a balance sheet and maintaining cash is going to be a little bit more important at the portfolio level. We can diversify across a bunch of stuff. So, so the calculus does change And, uh, and the only other point I'd add to this is I love the fact that Steve, Steven brought up a point that made me think that, you know, uh, David day trader might be owned by Warren Buffett. And I love that. And I think that that's a topic I need to be explored further towards the end of this uh, podcast. That's uh, definitely how he got out of the airlines. And that, that was genius. And I, I love that. <laughs> yeah. That, I wonder that, what yeah. his cash position is right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty yeah. damn funny. Actually, I've, I've got a question kind of peripheral to this. Uh, you know, if we knew in advance 
in Q4 that the markets will drop 50%, what would you do differently in your portfolio right now? Now the markets as a whole, not any of your specific positions, what changes, if any, would you make if we knew that in advance? Puts. <laughs> or would you get into a big cash position? And that's kind of the, the funny thing about this discussion. I, I would not. I'd I, wanna look at all the levered stuff that I own. Like that would be the stuff like, I don't know, what I own tends to get obliterated more in a downturn and then recover more later. Um, probably because I own all this levered stuff that is sort of on the bubble and people don't really trust it. Um, I'd, I'd want to say I'd take a hard look at that, but then, then again, I, I like all of them. And I'm like, well, I just see more clearly than others and some crap like that. And like, I don't know what I would actually be capable of doing, but that's what I'd like to have done is to like look hard, especially at the most vulnerable ones. Like if you own, I don't know, Kraft Heinz or something like that before then, then it's like, ah, maybe they're fine. Like, even though they're levered, they're, their operating results don't move that much. But like the, the ones where the operating results move and then it's magnified by financial leverage, that's what I'd want yeah. to look at. I was kind of impressed with what Ackman, Ackman's move. What didn't he, he, I mean, he's got a huge portfolio, but you know, he did, a, he, he entered into a CDS trade, so he didn't have to sell anything. And he, I guess he, you know, he obviously was right. Um, he thought something was coming and it did. And it, at least in hindsight appears that he sort of knew as much as you could know or had a strong feeling. And I, I liked what he did instead of trying to sell out of everything. Um, you know, he was at a size where he could write a, CD, a CDS and absorb, offset the, the temporary decline and then turn it off and reinvest it. So um, that, that kind of made sense to me. And his rationale was we didn't want to have to sell these great businesses part of it is a liquidity issue and, and you don't know if you could buy them back. So you definitely want, don't want to sell them because it's very dangerous to try to trade around that stuff, even for a small fund. Um, but I liked what he did um, just as an observation. I thought I read something about Stephen Keel getting a hundred bagger off some little. Thing. I did. Some hedge. So it, yeah. It pays to have a hedge, you know, that that's the whole point here is, and I think it allows you to not, be required or need to have that cash position if you keep some sort of hedge on. And I don't want to get into the specific details. It's a very small position, but I did have a hundred bagger on this hedge in March. And it's just kind of like an options position that I roll over each month on a volatility type of thing. And, you know, I mean, look, this is not my strategy as a bottom up fundamental investor, but even without that, I've done this on the side since I started the fund in 2012. And I think it's something that, every type of investor should take a look at doing if they, if they can consistently and, and, and apply discipline to doing it and rolling it over, whatever the case may be. Because this is, look, it's a black swan type of situation. Black swan, this is a black swan world. It just turns out they're a hell of a lot more common than we otherwise thought. And these things happen fairly frequently. And you know, we had a volatility situation right a year and a half earlier. Uh, and, and, and you know, then it was five years of nothing, right? It was just five years of just a slowly creep, creeping up. But if you can have the discipline to keep that, it, it allows you the freedom to not have to have the cash. And I invest, quote unquote, invest one and a half percent a year into this hedge. And if you go back to the beginning, for, set aside this, this you know, massive thing in, in, uh, in, in March, but if you go back to the beginning, it's still been a profitable trade for me. And even it's even an, on an absolute basis, it's even more profitable beyond that because what happens is you sell it when it appreciates in that way. Most of the time it expires worthless, but when it appreciates, you sell it and you can take that cash and put it to work. 
at companies that you already own or companies on the watch list who have fallen unnecessarily. So I, I would encourage people to look at that. Got it. Well, is there any other final thoughts on the optionality of cash? Because I mean, they, I got multiple topics that were sent in. This just happened to be the first one that we chose, you know? So any other final thoughts on this? Cause I feel like we're more or less everyone here is in agreement on, you know, just yeah. the idea of it. Yeah. 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 Sound good. All right. Well, actually, Stephen already kind of alluded to it. So the next topic that was sent in was this discussion on position sizing and then how that is incorporated into everyone's strategy. So let's talk about position sizing, you know, especially going on right now. I mean, uh, Stephen, you brought it up. You want to kick it off first and then we'll uh, make our rounds here. Absolutely. And this is, look, position sizing has to be based on your personality. Right. So I like concentrated positions. I like to dig deep into companies I own. I like to know them very well. I would be obsessive a bit about them before I'd be interested in purchasing it and buying into it. And I enjoy following very closely on a day to day basis uh, with the companies that I own and the companies on my watch list. So for me, if I was a mutual fund manager and I had to hold 50 positions, that's not fun. I wouldn't be good at it. Uh, I would be bored. I would, you know, I would not, uh, knowing a little bit about everything is, I, I don't think that's investing quite frankly. So I think that's more top down where you have to have some sort of macro view. So my personality fits a concentrated portfolio. I like to open up a position. I won't open up a position unless I'm comfortable owning uh, it at 10% of the fund. That doesn't mean I'm buying into that. Sometimes I'll buy in at a smaller position and want to average down or even sometimes average up given the circumstances or want to, you know, how do I feel at night when I, when I own it? Uh, but I want to be able to buy into uh, a 10% position, uh, you know, day one. If I don't have that conviction, I can't buy into it. Now, the second part of that though, is if you are a concentrated portfolio, you have to have an unusual level of discipline because you are going to have volatility there. You have to, communicate it to your investors. You have to make sure they're aligned and understand that. Uh, not just say they do, but actually have some experience, you know, with them doing that, especially given recent history. And you, you have to have some sort of disassociative type of expertise that uh, you don't just uh, via words say that you take advantage of volatility and you appreciate it, but you, you actually can do it. Uh, and, and then you actually do do it and have a history of doing it. So people who maybe are individual investors or people who are thinking about starting a fund or something like, like that, you have to have a history of being able to do that if you're going to apply this type of strategy in a fund structure. And you need to have the right type of investors who appreciate that long-term perspective and either cannot look at the date, the monthly state and quarterly statements or, or, uh, or, or appreciate and trust you know, what, what you're doing. Yeah, Jeremy, you run a similar strategy, very concentrated. I mean, my, my yeah. follow-up, I think, to you would be, and, and, and Stephen, you could also speak to, actually, I think Tom and, and Christian could also as well, is, you know, what are some of the questions that an investor who may be interested in deploying capital, you know, with you and in your fund, you know, that they should ask in order to, I, I don't know, I guess maybe feel that level of comfort, or at least if they want to participate in that, that strategy, what they can expect in terms of questions from you to see that it's a right fit. I mean, to Steve's point, he hit it right on, he nailed it. It's, it's, is this a fit for your personality? I mean, if I was a fund of funds or if I was allocated to other managers, I would just want to make sure that the strategy 
and, and the concentration piece especially was really a fit for their personality. I mean, if I, if somebody gets to know me, um, business wise or personally, they'd see, they would probably see that it was this type of investing as a fit. I mean, like Steve, I'm really fascinated with very specific businesses and, and sectors and that evolves and changes over time. But I don't have as much of an interest in staring at a Bloomberg terminal or listening to Fed like conversation. I, I just don't have an interest in the macro. I'm not interested in, in gold. Um, I'm not interested in Bitcoin. I'm not interested in those things. And I do what I'm interested in. Now, that doesn't mean those other things aren't valid. That just means that that's what I'm interested in. And prior to this, I, I did private equity and, and I worked for an entrepreneur before that and, and, and built a business. Um, so when I think about investing, you know, my background was operational experience and then looking at private companies. Um, and so I saw, you know, the, the lesson I took from Buffett, the, the most important lesson Buffett teaches us is the same lesson he learned from Ben Graham, which was look at every stock like you're buying the whole business. It is really nothing to do. It, it's up to you to determine how, what your opinion is on that. But the better you get to know the business, the easier it is to own it for a really long period of time and to take advantage of the benefits of owning it for a very long period of time. So if you own a business that can compound at a high rate of return or has the ability to reinvest 100% of its gross margin back into the business at an incrementally higher rate of return, the higher probability you have of achieving you know, a 100-bagger, for example, or a 10-bagger, number one. Number two, it lowers the risk because you don't have to continuously search for ideas. It's our ego that lets us think that we can just always come up with the very best idea. Yes, there's always something to do, but that doesn't mean it's always a good idea for you at that time and you can find it. So it minimizes risk it, 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 and, and also it minimizes the tax bill for, for US people um, that, that have to pay capital gains. Um, so it's a fit for my personality to really focus on a handful of businesses. I think about how difficult it would be to follow even 15 companies. And it's just not something that I'm interested in doing. And I don't think you can be successful doing something that you're not interested in doing. Now, does that not mean that it doesn't work for somebody else? There's some incredible investors. I, was rec I recently heard about an, a family office under the radar. Um, it's got one of the most impressive track records, if it's even real, that I've ever heard of, like a 40% plus Kager with hundreds of millions over, over two decades. And the guy's strategy isn't, doesn't take more than a 1% or 2% position at any given time, and he has some process for trading. And, and you know, hey, that, that's amazing. Um, uh, that, that's an incredible track record, and that's probably a fit for, for that guy's personality. So... Um, if I was an investor, to back to your question, if I was an investor doing due diligence on me, I would just want to make sure that, you know, that A, I was, that I really know the, that, that I'm passionate about these companies and have an interest in following them um, in, a, in a really particular way. Um, and that I had, a, that, that it was a fit with the personality and the long-term goals of the fund. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's not easy because the next person you talk to is going to have something different. But I think making sure that there, there's an alignment of interest between the personality of the person and the goals of the person and the goals of the fund. Um, and that would probably be where I would start. Gotcha. All right. Tom, Christian, you guys want to jump in? So, so yeah, yeah, I can jump in. I can jump in here first. Yeah. So, um, you know, on the I guess in terms of investors, I mean, I, you know, you know, I think the most important thing is getting to know each other really well. Um, people taking their time, um, just really getting to know each other. Um, obviously, 
you know, they would, they need to get to know me, but like, I need to get to know them because what I, what I definitely know is that giving people a survey or having a couple conversations with them and you know, what they say and what they do are, are very frequently not going to be the same thing. Um, there are a lot of people who are like, I'm comfortable with volatility. And then the market goes down 5%. And they, they're like having a heart attack and you're like, you're not comfortable with volatility. And, you know, and, and so it's, you know, you know, I, I think there's no magic bullet there. It's just really getting to know you might, there might be people who are great investors because they're just super hands off. They don't want to pay attention to it. It's actually, they can actually be a great investor. They do kind of their due diligence up front and then they don't want to look at it and that can work quite well. Um, there are other investors who are just very, very sophisticated um, and completely and utterly understand the strategy, probably because they did it at some point. Um, and then there's a lot of people in between. They, I think you got to be a little careful with. Um, position sizing, I'm, I'm probably a little different than, um, probably not that different than Steven there. Um, Jeremy, you're, you're probably a bit more concentrated than me. I, I'm, I'm kind of like an 8 to 16 holding type guy. That's always what I tell people. But I, I think the truth is always going to be closer to the 16 side. Um, for me, it's, there's no right answer. You know what I mean? So it's not like I'm going to argue like one's better than the other. I, I, I do think, you know, obviously, you know, I'm not smart enough to do the 40% with 2% positions. <laughs> if you could do that, that's awesome. But for, for most of us, like, you know, I, 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 I do think that you don't have the bandwidth if you're a small fund to follow 40 holdings, uh, adequately. Um, and you've settled for a lot of second, third, fourth best ideas that you probably haven't done enough due diligence on. There's just only so many hours in the day to look for new things and monitor current holdings. So I, I found the 8 to 16% or 8 to 16 holdings kind of kind of good. That What that usually means is initial positions, 5 to 10%. Uh, if I'm not willing to put 5% in, I'm not interested. Um, you know, but I, yeah, I guess, you know, in the end of the day, the debate comes down to um, so I, here's how I would put it, you know, I, you know, Jeff Bezos, I'm going to butcher this, but he talks about, you know, getting to 70, 80% understanding of something. And then after that point, you know, the, the, how well you can understand that the returns are diminishing. And, and I personally find that with holdings, I, I do due diligence, I get as much understanding as I can. Maybe this is because I used to work on the inside of a public company, you know, and, and I knew the management didn't even know what the hell was going on. So like, I just kind of, at a certain point, like you've gotten to a limit and you're, you're not getting your time is better off starting to look for the next opportunity. And you're either comfortable at that limit of your knowledge or not. You need to know what you know, what you don't know. There's a lot that goes into that. And um, whether I go five or 10% positions, that, that's largely a function of, um, you know, if it, look, look, there are certain things you invest in, you're like, I think this is going to do really well, but I, I could see it being zero. I'm never going to go 10% into one of those. I'm just not going to be comfortable. There are other ones I look at where I'm like, this thing's cheap. It's got a line of management. They got to see a balance sheet. They don't have debt. They're reinvesting at, you know, 100% ROE. Like they got this growth runway in front of them. It literally checks every single kind of compounder bro box, but also it's cheap, which is important to me. And then I'm like, those are the ones where I'm like, oh, okay, I want to own this for six, seven years. Those are the 10% positions for me. So I think that would kind of sum up, sum up that question for me. Okay. I, like that, I like that phrase, compounder bro. I think we should, I think that should, <laughs> I think we got to make that a thing. I think that, that's, that's hilarious. <laughs> oh, it's a thing. It's a, yeah, it's a total thing at this point. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It's I, all the compliment I, or not. We'll make really that a like conversation on FinTwit. 
I, I like what Chris. you said about um, knowing knowing enough to act, and then I don't know. Like, there's a lot of things where, well, there's sometimes where I look at something and very quickly I can be like, no, and sometimes there I can be very quickly like, this is very special, and I want to keep looking at it. And sometimes with the stuff that's very special, I get to a point where I'm like, I'm I'm going. I think I know everything I need to know to make a buy decision at this point, and and I'll go in. But then after that, you continue to do research and you have your like key questions of like, these are the things that I think that matter and these are the things that I want to watch. And then the future plays out and you get to learn like, how does that work out? Does it continue to follow that story? Does it continue to be consistent with my understanding of this situation or, or are there some problems in those key areas? So I, I like that of like, I don't know, the 80-20 rule, like you can get to 80%, I can make a decision a lot of the times, um, but then for that remaining 20% or you know, what is revealed by the future and the passage of time, like that continues to matter and you continue to watch it. Um, that's, that's more how I am. I, yeah. Um, in terms of position sizing, I'm usually, I'm, I'm concentrated too. Um, I'd say it's a 10 or 15% position if it like meets everything that I'm looking at and it's what I consider something special. Um, I'd say it'd be closer to 10 um, or even lower depending on how illiquid it is because there's sometimes there are things where like I, I, own, I own one stock that was a spin-off that I could buy all that I wanted to in the first month and then in the three years since then like good luck selling like ten thousand um, dollars. So it's like I don't know sometimes with special situations they got to know that going in um, and like, I can't make that a 20% position on day one. Otherwise I've got like a, bunk, a, a lump of rock in my portfolio for the foreseeable future. Um, so that I'd want to have smaller. If I find something that's even better, I'll, I'll try to make it bigger, but that's, it's gotta be really, really, really special to be bigger. And then there are the cases where I'm not doing like hedges, but I'm doing experiments. So last year's experiments were in liquidations of like, what the heck is a liquidation? When do I actually get paid? What happens to these things? Cause like they cease to exist on the SEC website. Um, and you just like some, like I had one that I bought last year and just like a little pile of cash just appeared in my account last month. And I was like, where did this even come from? Like, I don't know. So with those learning experiences, I'd put like a tiny, tiny piece of money in. Um, and this year's experiments are with like fast growers. So I'm, I found some things that I think are really cool and they're growing fast, but it's like different rules from my normal, like calculating upside to downside is not the same with a fast growing company, even when it's profitable. Um, for, so for those, I've taken a few 1% positions and I'm gonna like watch them. And I've got my like, these are the things that matter and I'm gonna keep watching those things. Um, but I can't make that a 15% position because I'm not gonna shoot myself in the head by like, going down a dark road that I've never been on before that looks kind of cool, but like, I don't know who's going to shoot me, you know, that kind of way. I love found cash. Oh, what a great, <laughs> what, a, what a great day. It's like when you put on a pair of jeans, you forgot that you put 20 bucks in there. You're like, oh, it's I'm, it's I'm getting in and out today. It's inordinately <laughs> pleasurable. It's just like, Oh, like, <laughs> I mean, it might even be like a 20% return, like over the course of a year or something, but it's like, Whoa, I just won the lottery. This <laughs> Optionality. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking about uh, signing on a brokerage account with city, just in case they happen to happen to drop $900 million into my account. Like they did for that hedge fund last week. 
special situation. Yeah, they refused, they refused to return it. And then when City sued, they still are refusing to return this $900 million bank error literally in their favor. Uh, well, if, if that had happened in Europe, you'd, they, they would have returned it really quickly because of negative, negative interest rates. Yeah. So, um, they, charge, they charge you to keep cash, and it's uh, quite high. Um, I think it's 0.05% a month. What? So it compounds. Uh, it's, it's pretty punitive. So you'd be returning it really quickly. So Jeremy, this is, this is making this me is think a, twice about Portugal right now. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> this is a reason not to hold cash, right? And that's if, right. If you're that's invested, right. if you're a European money manager, uh, all the incentives are to go long, go long the markets, go long real estate. I mean, yep. this is the difference between a few years ago. You say, well, how can the economy be so bad and the markets keep up as as they have? And there's every incentive in the world to uh, prop up. Uh, you know the the investing world, and you know whether it's a Tesla, or whether it's a you know Bitcoin, or whether it's just the market as a whole. So it makes it very difficult, actually, for bottom up investors, fundamental investors who are interested in strong balance sheets. We're not getting credit for that. I mean, I preach honestly, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but you know, sorry, somebody else want to jump in there. Tom? Well, I, I was going to say that the only credit you got was a good night's sleep, you know, in March and April when he had a strong balance sheet, which was, I mean, it was, I mean, I mean, it was great. It's crazy. Like, you know, like I, yeah, obviously I know a lot of smart guys who were in high lever names and I think a lot of them have come back a bit, but give it down. Like, yeah, it was like, it's like, it was terrifying, you know, like the drops and, um, you know, guys, guys stuck in it and they're coming back and it's, uh, but it's, you know, it's not fun, you know? So, so there is, you get that extra little kicker, even though we didn't get all the optionality of the holding level cash that we wanted in that case. So we'll have I, our I had again. cash then and I was like, all right, this is coming, this is getting good. Like some things are going off of like, this is an attractive price. And I'm just like, all right, like another, you know, the 20% down and I'm going to hit the crap out of this and I'm going to be a hero. And then the <laughs> stock market's like, I'm going to go up 14% in two days. And it's like, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you had but you had the bad. same issue Buffett did there, you know, because he really has not he didn't make the the buy decisions until recently, and so I don't think and I think that's different that from the past. Like I think in the past he's been successful in I don't know like nailing more of the bottom, and this yeah. time it's just like your brain missing. doesn't work the same at ninety that it does at sixty five. I mean, is it is it that or like how like I mean global pandemic? Like this is one of those black swans that I don't think, you know, any well, investor You know, back when I was investing in nineteen sixty well, other than Bill other than Bill <laughs> Yeah, right. I mean Bill Gates is the only one I think that may that maybe had an inkling that this was uh, really gonna you know happen. But at the same time, I mean history shows us that potential outbreaks have been quelled pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, at least in recent history. So, can can you imagine head, being in your nineties? Right. Can can you imagine being like in your nineties? Well, actually, Buff is what like eighty eight now, eighty nine. I can't remember what he is, right. but let's yeah. just call him 90, ninety. Right, this month. Ninety this month. All right, yeah. Can you I imagine think, being uh, ninety? Like this week, your, I think it's like August twenty fifth or something. I don't know why I know that, but I think something like that. Can you imagine being in your nineties? Yeah, you have like the arguably one of the best records of all time. You're worth tens of billions of dollars, and you get these thirty somethings. We're all sitting there. We're like, we're like, oh, you missed the bottom. And he's just like, he's got to just be like, yeah, whatever. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. In my nineties, you know, I was, 
Dude, he's I was done. Yeah. yeah, he's he's already made. He's already in the Hall of Fame. He doesn't need to prove anything <laughs> to anybody. No, but it's the same thing. Oh, said, man, I missed okay, yeah, Babe Ruth. You know, today, uh, you know, Mike Trout's better than Babe Ruth. Like that's the argument now. Only Babe Ruth would still be alive. Like that's the crazy thing. Or you got a guy who just plays for a year or two and has an incredible couple years because of steroids, and he's he's just beating his chest against poor you know babe ruth who's still alive i mean that's the situation we're in because of this babe, oh babe ruth too like he you know these guys all use peds performance enhancing drugs now he used performance dehancing drugs that guy was drinking like <laughs> like you know every night you know which like that should be factored into the arguments i mean yeah like john Ma didn't john mcenroe and hit it out didn't John McEnroe smoke a cigarette before he played or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, they don't make them like they used to. No, that's right. Larry, Larry Bird would have a six pack after a game, you know, talk about recovery time period. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty wild. I mean, not, not to add on to the Babe Ruth thing, but I think he ate like a friggin' horse. The guy, oh, yeah. the guy like not only dogs. did he, yeah, I mean, he, right. He was famous for eating all the hot dogs, but look, yeah. as, as somebody that spends his spare time looking at baseball reference and going through war, Steven, I'm going to politely disagree with you. Okay. <laughs> on Mike Trout, just based on WAR statistics. All right. I mean, I the guys, I like, I like Trout. He's great. I, a bad analogy. It would have been more like somebody like say Brady Anderson when he hit 50 home runs, another, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And, and then he started beating his chest as the best investor ever. And I think that's what's happened with our DDG friend. Um, as entertaining as it is. <laughs> oh, man. What, what an analogy there. I mean, that, that, okay. All right. We'll go with that one, but all right. Luis Gonzalez, he had like 56 <laughs> one year or something like that out of nowhere. We'll as an Orioles that. fan, that's I a, like that's a curse that. word. Luis Gonzalez <laughs> is a curse word in this household. Okay. <laughs> Dude, that, I will never forget 2001. Bobby, don't you need to disclose that you're long uh, Mike Trout's rookie card or something? <laughs> 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 yeah, that's, 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 I guess I'm that, after this call here. I don't know. I'm long Derek Jeter rookie card. That's the, that's 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 my claim to fame. Right well, now. that's degrading now with the way the Marlins uh, are handling the front office. Quite frankly, we don't but. we don't think about that on trade markets. Okay, that's just that's that, we're talking about Jeter the player. All right, but uh, here's here's well, one other. Oh, sorry, Steve. No, no, just to take it back to investing for a moment. You know, it just goes to show that in anything, whether it's uh, sports or investing, where you get these short-term time periods and, you know, there is excessive excitement and excessive kind of depression in, in short time periods. And I think that's what, that's what's happening right now for those of us who are, and, you know, not to say, I mean, some of us have done well, some of us have, have underperformed and it, it just, it, when you're concentrated, you know, one position or two positions can really, it, it can win you the, the, the few year time period there. Uh, but, as a whole, when you're looking over a 10, 15, 20 year time period, you know, the fundamental analysis, the bottom up, the safer companies, and by safe, I mean, you know, balance sheet, they have reinvestment opportunities, they have good capital allocators. The euphoria in the market here that's been happening the last year or the last six months where some of the worst run companies and the most levered companies are outperforming, it's a moment in time situation. It's, it's great if you're able to catch it, but over the long term, uh, you know, it's the type of analysis that I think each of us do that that is much safer and, and will get that uh, kind of long-term outperformance. And quite frankly, back to the concentration question, I think there are certainly exceptions that Jeremy mentioned where, you know, you have someone who uh, has a talent for being widely diversified and has done well. But uh, 
almost as a whole, except for those very few exceptions, you know, the way to really outperform by at least the several percentage points every year for a long time period, it has to come from uh, really strong concentration, maybe even extreme concentration in some cases. Yeah, I don't think there are that many special opportunities. They're just, just not. Or, or for well, a human, you know, like a normal human, uh, me to find. It's, it's, I'm not finding 50 a year. It's so, it's so interesting because everybody starts in this business thinking they're different and you can see it. And when you meet young managers that are just starting the idea that, you know, I can do it and it just the arrogance and it just, I, I think you need that to get started. You need to believe that you can do it. But the longer you're, I mean, I'm, I'm on year nine now and I see how hard it is. And I see how at this, this many years in any little wrong move has a dramatic uh, swing in, in your ability to underperform or outperform the S and P. I mean, the S and P is a beast, and you know, the, what what really has kind of opened my eyes during the last couple of years is to learn just how little fundamental research people actually do outside of just financial research. So, um, you know, they they don't really study the business and they don't have a long term outlook, and that's really why um, it's it becomes really hard to to outperform. It's it's one, a concentration issue for sure. You have to be concentrated. But the longer you're in this business, the harder it is to outperform because you're, you're constantly trying to change your mind and move around. And you're not thinking about the business from, from you know, the period of time that you have to try to outperform so, or that you're going to be in business. So it's, um, yeah, the longer you're in this business, the harder it is to outperform and the more important concentration becomes. I think that's a pretty great way to, to end our, our roundtable. I think uh, we're about there. Um, I don't want to take up every, too much more of everyone's time. I mean, let's get some final takes and where everybody can find you on uh, for more information, you know, your website and social media. So um, let's go clockwise now. So Tom, let's start with you. All right. Yeah. Tom Backrack, PFH Capital. Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at PFH Capital. That's Paul as in P is in Paul, F is in Frank, H is in Henry Capital, uh, or pfhcap.com. Uh, thanks for having us. That was fun. Cool. Christian? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Just search for Christian Reither, R-Y-T-H-E-R. I think there are like two of us in the country, so I'm the only one tweeting. Uh, find me there. You know, I think I'm going to take a screenshot of your background and use that as my background from now on. Because yeah. I, I like this I, idea. I've been staring at Warren this entire time. I'm not even kidding. That's <laughs> what he's for. Yeah. Like, this is... The eyes. Know, this is like a thing Those eyes. slow thing to like... Yeah, you can put eyes on a wall or you can put Warren Buffett's eyes on the wall. And either way, it's like designed to make you focus. Oh. I feel like he's smirking at us. Like, you know, I appreciate you guys having these conversations, but then at the same time, I'm like, you, you know, he's looking at me like you. Yeah. Christian, Your problems with investing are insignificant compared to mine. Yes. Hey, Christian, can you ask Charlie if he has anything to add? Yeah, please. <laughs> nothing to add. <laughs> we need, a, right. we need like, we need like on Howard Searcher, we need like a Charlie puppet. We need a Charlie and a Warren puppet on here. I think that, Next time, next show, we'll, we'll, we'll make that, we'll make that up. Yeah, Jeremy? That one off Etsy. <laughs> yeah, right. um, JDPcap.com. Um, and I'm, I do a little bit on Twitter, but it's uh, at Jeremy Deal. So not that, not that hard to find, uh, just my name. We're going to get, we're going to get Jeremy, we're going to get Jeremy tweeting more. I, I yeah, I need to, I've started a little bit. It's a time suck. Bit, but, it's uh, so much of a time yeah. suck. Oh. 
Just retweet a bunch of things that you like, you know, that's I know. Just, I started just do to that. do that. This, <laughs> that, that square. I just learned how to do that recently. I'm pretty behind the eight ball. So. <laughs> there you go, Steven. Yeah. Arquitos.com is the firm. A-R-Q-U-I-T-O-S. You, know, you can find me on Twitter. I've recently uh, been kind of retweeting dog pictures, you know, to get through this time period <laughs> and cute, cute golden retrievers and things of that nature. Um, but no, anyway, I'm, I'm at Twitter, Stephen uh, underscore Kiel, K-I-E-L. Um, you know, I look forward to interacting for sure. I, I found it as a, to be a productive resource, uh, is a, you know, thriving FinTwit community. community. Um, there's some good snark on there that I try to limit, but uh, it's, it's still entertaining. So um, that is for sure. That's for sure. Well, Gentlemen, thank you all for joining us today and being yeah, on here. Yeah, thank you for uh, having us. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to have you guys all back on, all right? Okay. My all pleasure. Right, thank right. you so much. Talk to thank you. you. Soon. Bye. Bye.